Man, thank you, Pastor Nino. That's, that's awesome. Man, I love that. Jesus doesn't call us to comfort. Um, he does call us to joy, right? But he doesn't call us to comfort. And, and I can really testify that. Um, actually, another thing that C.S. Lewis says, um, there's a chapter. That, I have two other quotes, too, so this is just bonus. Two other C.S. Lewis quotes after this one. Um, there's a chapter in Mere Christianity. I don't know if our former CMITs remember this chapter, but he asks the question, is Christianity harder or easier? Is it a harder life or an easier life to live? And, and he makes the argument that it's harder in the short term, but easier in the long term and more joyful in the long term, right? Um, you guys might understand this principle because um, do you think it's harder or easier to write a paper two weeks in advance or to wait till the night before like I used to do and stay up all night and fall asleep with your head on the keyboard? Which one's, which one's, <laughs> which one's harder? It's, it's harder in the short term to start the paper two weeks earlier, right? And to get it out of the way because then it's not in your mind and you do a better job and you have time to revise it and all these things, right? It's harder in the, in the, in the short term, but it's easier in the long term because it turns out better and you're less stressed, right? Um, writing the paper, procrastinating is easier in the short term, but harder in the long term, right? And that's the Christian life. We make decisions now to delay gratification, but, but joy is waiting for us. And we're going we're gonna to talk more about that. Um, and I can, I can attest to that in terms of sexual purity because um, that's my story. God, God walked me through an addiction to pornography. It was really an addiction. It wasn't like many times in my life I wasn't viewing pornography every day, but it was like something that, um, that I couldn't break hold of. God would give me victory for a season, for a short amount of time, and then it would come back into my life. And, um, and, and breaking that addiction is hard in the short term because you're used to it, because it, it feels comfortable even though it's destroying you. But in the long term, man, I'm telling you, I've tried sexual impurity and I've tried sexual purity and sexual purity is more fun. It's more fun, right? It's not, not like, oh, I feel holier. I mean, that, that is the, there, there is that, right? It honors God more. I'm closer to Jesus, all these great things, but it's also more fun. It's harder in the short term, but way easier and better and more fun in the long term. Um, and, and some of you don't realize that yet because you haven't tried sexual purity. But I'm telling you, you'll like it. <laughs> you will like it. Uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to get into the message, okay? Father, we thank you so much for your truth. We thank you that you are such a good job, such a good God. You call us to sacrifice. You call us to die. Like Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when, when Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. But you also call us to life. You call us to resurrection after the death. I thank you that you're such a good God that you don't just tell us to, to fulfill your commands, but you give us the grace, the power to fulfill them. You help us fulfill them, and then you reward us infinitely when we do. We thank you, Father, that you're not a, a mean God that puts all these demands on us um, for your benefit and to our detriment, but you, you call us to, to live this life of devotion for our benefit and for your glory. I pray as, as your truth is spoken today that it would be received, that it would go forth in clarity and bring transformation in Jesus' name. Amen. First, I need, uh, I need some helpers. Seth and Joel, will you guys help me? Come on down here. These are my boys. These are my boys. Joel, Christopher Payne. 
This is Seth Christopher Paint. Just kidding. His middle name, his middle name is Michael. We were joking just like a couple weeks ago, weren't we, guys, that it, I should have named all of my kids middle name Christopher. <laughs> Lily Christopher Payne, Luke Christopher Payne. Hey, pass these out. Just, give the, just pass the bags around. Everyone take one of these. You got to open them up first. Sorry. Sorry, guys. So just, hey, Seth, start back there. Hand that one back there to Matt and have him pass it around. Take one if you'd like. Um, read, the, read the ingredients label first if you have any allergies. I recommend that. We don't need any ER visits today. Just hand the bag around, Joel, and let them pass it down. Yep, just snake it around. I want everyone to take one. Don't take two. Don't lie in church. Don't steal in church. These are delicious chocolates. And I don't know how fair trade they are, how ethically sourced they are, so I apologize for that. But at Sam's Club this morning, there was just a very limited uh, selection. Yes, sir. No. Easy. That's an easy answer. Yes, you got one too? I should take one, man. I'm kind of needing some chocolate. Uh, I need my water. Oh, don't eat it yet. Don't eat it yet. Just hold on to it. Um, so I want to tell you something. You guys, everyone got one? Get one, Joel. Okay. I want to tell you something that Pastor Nino told me a long time ago, and it's, it's something that has uh, really helped me a lot. Your mind is like a camera. It develops whatever you focus on. So you can write that down. You can tweet that. Come on. <laughs> Do people tweet anymore? You can TikTok that way? No. Your mind is like a camera. It develops what you focus on. I'll say it one more time. Your mind is like a camera. It develops what you focus on. Our minds were made to focus on Jesus. And when you set your mind on anything other than Christ, what you develop will not be pretty. You will have some unintended consequences. And this principle applies to all of life. But for the purpose of this sermon, like we've already talked about, we're going to apply this principle to helping us live a life of sexual purity. I want to read a scripture for you. It's in Psalm 115. You can turn to Psalm 115. We have five verses there we're going to read together. Thanks, man. I get more than one. Ooh, thanks, Joel. Let's give my boys a round of applause. Nice job, sons. That takes some skill to hand out these chocolates as well as they did. I might actually eat one during the sermon. You guys there? Psalm 115? All right. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8. And here's what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Now listen to this. This is really profound. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Those who make them, just, just meditate on that for a little while. What does that mean? Those who make them, those who make these idols, and everyone who trusts in these idols becomes like these idols. So the idols these people were worshiping were mute, blind, and deaf. They couldn't smell, feel, walk, or speak. 
In other words, they lacked the ability to communicate or interact. These idols were inhuman. They were not human, right? And when we worship idols, when we put things before God, and I really believe that if we could translate this, apply this passage about idols to modern-day United States in the 21st century world, um, pornography would be this kind of thing. Um, a lot of people, when, when they view pornography or, or when they just engage in sexual impurity, you're not necessarily thinking cognitively that I'm worshiping an idol. But it is really, I mean, one of the closest things I could think of to worshiping idols. Um, and when we do that, we become like those things. We start to exhibit the qualities of the things that we are partaking of and the, and the things that we're giving ourselves over to. It makes us less human, unable to speak, unable to, to see or to hear, unable to, to smell, feel, walk, or speak. We lose our humanness that God gave us. The, the God image that he placed within us begins to diminish, and it begins to, to be buried under the, all, all this gunk and grime that we're piling in our minds and bodies. And I really do believe that one of the most worshipped idols on our campus is sexual immorality. And unfortunately, this is one of the idols in the American church that most often challenges devotion to Christ. This isn't just a them problem, right? This is an us problem. I want to read a story to you. Um, it's a synopsis of a, of a powerful book called The Chocolate Touch. Has anyone ever heard of this book called The Chocolate Touch? Cindy's read like every book, so I'm not surprised. <laughs> so now's the time. You can open your chocolate. Don't get any in, in the amphitheater because we're not supposed to have food in the amphitheater. Don't ever bring food in the amphitheater, by the way. Don't leave your wrappers in here. Oh, man, you guys are going to get me in trouble. You're going to get us kicked out of here. We've almost been kicked out of here before. This is, this is one of my favorite little treats. Yeah, go ahead and start, start eating. You can eat it slowly if you like. I think it's going to help make this story more powerful. Just let it melt in your mouth. So listen, listen to this synopsis. This is based on an ancient Greek myth called, I don't know what it's called, but it's about King, the Midas touch, that's right. That's why I don't take my car to Midas. Actually, I do. Oops. John Midas is a young boy with an intense but obsessive love of chocolate. Isn't it good? Mmm. Good in small quantities and in large quantities. Unless you puke or get 400 pounds. Or are allergic, that's right. Dr. Cranium, the Midas family doctor, warns John that his health is poor and until further notice... He is to eat only foods that are conducive to a healthy boy, a healthy body, much to the boy's disgruntlement. The doctor's orders are backed by John's parents, who dispose of their son's entire candy stash. Ouch! And take control of his spending money. Angered at having his life micromanaged, John goes for a walk to clear his head. I'm going to take a break so I can finish my chocolate. Just talk amongst yourselves. Mm. Whilst on his excursion, he sees a coin on the ground. John rejoices over his good fortune. 
having found a way to clandestinely, like that word? I didn't write that. Clandestinely acquire some chocolate. However, when he studies the coin, he sees it is engraved with the image of a fat boy and the letters JM, creepy, right? And dismisses it as an unknown token. Even so, John remarks the coin is unique and as JM stands for John Midas and decides to hang on to it. Also on his walk, he comes across a candy store he has never seen before. Even more odd is that the store is run by a man whom John has never met before, but is friendly and refers to John by name and extols his chocolate as the finest ever. The confectioner offers John a box of his chocolates in exchange for the strange coin. That night before going to bed, John decides to have one final chocolate feast, only to be dismayed to find the box contains nothing save for an ordinary chocolate ball, which does not taste overly different from most other types of chocolate. The next morning, John is amazed to find everything he eats tastes like chocolate. Then the chocolate touches effects go into full swing, and whatever touches his mouth turns to chocolate. However, he cannot properly hydrate himself this way. He then gets tired of eating chocolate and yearns once again to be able to eat foods with nutrients, with real nutrients. Viewing ham sandwiches, this has no nutrients. Where are the fresh ingredients? Viewing ham sandwiches, sliced chicken, cherries, and other such prosaic fare as Earth's choicest delicacies. For the first time in his young life, preferring normal food to candy. The boy also realizes everything he touches with his mouth transforms into chocolate, as evidenced when he turns his trumpet into a chocolate trumpet. During band practice, John ruins the birthday party of his friend Susan when a game of bobbing for apples results in everyone being awashed in chocolate sauce. No, I know, right? John tells his dad he needs help. That's an important part of John's story, by the way. When he tells someone he needs help, under the impression, John, reinfor- John needs reinforcement with his diet. I don't know what that sentence means. I didn't write this, like I said. Under the impression, John needs reinforcement. Okay, got it. Under the impression that John needs reinforcement with his diet, they go to Dr. Cranium, who prescribes a tonic. John promptly spits out chocolate syrup and a chocolate spoon, exposing John's chocolate transforming ability. Dr. Cranium then turns his attention to his own fame in the medical world, calling this Cranium's disease. And Mrs. Midas cries when she finds out John is affected by this apparent disease. In order to comfort her, John tries to kiss his mother. But he turns her into a chocolate statue. Horrified, he rushes to the candy store where the chocolate vendor tells him only greedy people can see the money he spent at the store. He offers John a choice between restoring his mother to normal and removing the chocolate touch. And John begs him to help his mother. Recognizing that John was, has repented, the shopkeeper promises that all the things John turned to chocolate have reverted to their original states. His friendship with Susan is repaired, and neither his parents nor Dr. Cranium have any knowledge of the chocolate transforming ability. John returns home to a quiet house, and his mom once again, a living human woman. We should give a round of applause for John. Realizing as part of his transformation... He ought to thank the shopkeeper for undoing all the damage, part of his reformation. Thank the shopkeeper for undoing all the damage. He runs back to the candy store only to see nothing but an empty lot. (sighs) 
So this story illustrates the truth that you develop what you focus on. You develop the affections that are in your heart. And the enemy tries to distract us and make us think that it would be pretty nice to turn our attention away from Jesus, right? He packages sin and impurity in a way that looks appealing. And momentarily, and it's shameful to even say this, but I think all of us have probably done it. Momentarily, we say, I'd rather have this thing than Christ right now. That's scary, isn't it? But like I said, when we set our focus on anything other than Christ, there will be some unintended, unintended consequences. Many times, a lot of unintended consequences. Like turning your mother into a chocolate statue. So don't sin, or else you might turn your mother into a chocolate statue. That's the moral of the story. That's the takeaway I want you to. Don't turn your mother into chocolate. Okay? We don't want that. When you focus on something, that thing impacts who you are, and it shapes you little by little. So here's, here's the first C.S. Lewis quote. You ready for it? This is one of my faves. This is from Mere Christianity. And C.S. Lewis writes, Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. I hope that all of you right now would say that you're progressing more into a heavenly creature rather than a hellish being or heavenly, hellish being, heavenly, I don't remember. Anyway, I hope you're becoming more heavenly right now. But I also hope that you're becoming more heavenly every day throughout the week. What we do in here is just such a small amount of time, such a short amount of our weeks and our lives. What we do out there might be shaping us more than what we're doing in here. And we need those things to be consistent because every moment, the little decisions that we're making, every choice we make, either for good or for evil, helps shape who we become. And this is why we need to be so careful about what we allow to enter into our minds. Guys, what you read, what you listen to, what you watch, what you think about, um, <clears throat> it shapes you, it changes you little by little. And if you're consuming media that is impure, even if it's not technically sinful, it still may be having a negative impact on your soul. And you might reason, you know, this, this or that behavior is not technically sinful, or maybe it's not my temptation. Maybe I'm watching a movie that just has, like, gratuitous violence, right? And I don't, I don't feel tempted towards violence. And so um, it's fine for me, right? Maybe it's something like that. I mean, I'm not saying it is or it isn't, right? I'm not saying it is or isn't sinful because this isn't legalism. But just think, like, how is this shaping me? How is this affecting my soul? Is this making my soul healthier? Is this turning me into a heavenly being or a hellish creature? Little by little, these little decisions. What impact is it having on my mind and my soul? Before my family watches something together, even if it's just Julie and I watching a show together a lot of times, probably almost every time, 
if we feel like it, there might be something that's objectionable or, or uh, impure, that's something that Jesus wouldn't enjoy watching with us, we like, we'll look it up. We look up the parent view, even, if it's just, even though it's just two adults watching it. We'll look up the parent view so that we make sure, like, okay, is this, how is this going to affect my soul? Is this going to honor Christ? Those things are important. It's important to guard ourselves. I'm not talking about legalism, like I said. But we need to guard our minds and reserve our hearts and our souls for focus on Christ because our decisions matter. They're not insignificant. These moment-by-moment choices are not insignificant. And once the Holy Spirit puts his finger on an area, once God highlights an area in our lives that needs growth, then it's not something that we can delay. We can't put those things off and say, well, I'll deal with this later. When I was a teenager, struggling with lust, I knew it was wrong. Most of us know it's wrong when we commit sexual sin. I knew I shouldn't do it, and I thought that if I continued to repent and go to the altar on Sunday mornings or whatever, at church, at youth group or whatever, when I would look at pornography, that I would eventually mature and stop doing those things. I thought that trying harder to do better would be enough. But it wasn't. Most of my repentance was in secret to God alone. We do need to repent to God in secret. But I was not practicing James 5.16, which commands us to confess our sins one to another and to pray for each other, and you will be healed, it says. Right? Confessing to God, for sure, that's a given. But where the healing comes... When we begin to experience healing is when we confess our sins one to another and pray for each other. And the promise is that you'll be healed. It doesn't promise you'll be healed completely all the way right away. It takes a battle. Man, I, I prayed so many times, hundreds of times, thousands of times probably, that God would heal me in an instant and take away my sin and this make me never desire sin again. God never did that. He does that for some people. I've known people that he's done that for. But God didn't do that for me. And I've, I've learned now that he strengthened me through it, that I wouldn't have been nearly as strengthened if he had just done this miracle instantly in my life. I wouldn't have developed the perseverance and the grit. I wouldn't have become uh, a better warrior. I wouldn't have learned to fight. I wouldn't have learned to fight for other battles that people need me to fight, right? I wouldn't have learned to fight battles for my family or for my church or for my friends, right? I wouldn't have learned to battle if God had removed that in a, min in, in a moment. But through that battle, he has taught me to fight. And the sins that I repented of so many times, they didn't stop. They continued into adulthood. And it wasn't until I began to really battle lust with every tool that God had provided that I really started to experience victory. I remained bound in sin until I began to really battle lust with every tool God had given me. And I'm going to tell you about a tool, maybe several tools in a minute, but one in particular that I'm going to tell you about that God has used mightily in my life. So be ready for that. So if your mind develops what it focuses on, what develops in us when we engage in impurity? When we engage in impurity, what develops in us? So the quote that I read by C.S. Lewis says that madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and loneliness develop when we turn from Christ, when we put our eyes on other things. And other, other things that develop are self-centeredness. We start to view other people's value according to their ability to please us or to meet our needs or our desires. We become the center of our universe. 
but Jesus is supposed to be the center of our universe, right? We revolve around him. But we, we start to think that people need to revolve around us and to meet our needs and to fulfill our desires. Another thing that develops is perversion. We, we develop twisted views of what is pleasurable. We develop abuse of ourselves and of others. We, we develop an, an, an abusive mindset. Also, an inability to enjoy sexuality as God intended starts to, to, starts to develop in us. An inability, an inability to enjoy sexuality as God intended. I hear more and more about people who are unable to enjoy sex the way God intended it because they've just polluted their minds, damaged their minds and bodies so much. They're no longer to enjoy it. If, if sexual temptation, if the draw of it is pleasure, then why is the end result the lack of pleasure? It doesn't make sense, right? If our culture is less, less sexually repressed, right, and more sexually expressive than it's ever been, is that what we think, right? That people tell us that the answer to, um, I don't know, being like, not being able to, to live fully sexually is like, you need to stop being sexually repressed, right? Isn't that what we hear sometimes in, in culture and in the media? That we need to be more sexually expressive. Well, our world is more sexually expressive than it's ever been. But I don't see more sexual fulfillment. Do you? I see, I see more sexual bondage. I see more sexual crimes, more people being abused and in bondage. People are having more difficulty enjoying sex than they've ever had. And ultimately, the end result of, of all of our focus, all of our distraction away from Christ is death, right? We know that. That's the end result. We know where that path leads. That is a dark path that leads to destruction. But on the contrary, what might we develop if we focus our minds on Christ alone and allow him to direct our sexuality as he sees fit? Man, what kind of heavenly beings would we become if we consistently focus our attention on the glory in the face of Christ? I'll tell you some things that might develop, that I believe will develop. Sexual satisfaction is one of those things. There was a study in 1992 by the University of Chicago of sexually active Americans between the ages of 18 and 59, and they found that monogamous, heterosexual, married couples scored highest on sexual and relational satisfaction over all other groups. Did you hear that? Monogamous, heterosexual, married couples scored highest on sexual and relational satisfaction over all other groups. people who are sexually pure enjoy sex more. That's all right to say that in church. Everyone repeat after me. <laughs> sex is holy. The preacher said to say something, and some of you didn't say it. Everyone repeat after me. Sex is holy. That's better. Okay, that's better. I said that at core leadership retreat a few years ago. Actually, every year I say that now. But for the first time, I said it a few years ago because everyone got all squirmy when I started talking about reproduction, the master plan of evangelism. They got all squirmy. I was like, all right, everybody repeat after me. I was like, I think we need a healing moment here. And then some people came up to me later, and they're like, we need to clarify something. Sex within marriage is holy. I was like, yeah, you're right. Okay, sex within marriage is holy. It's not always holy, but the way God designed it is holy, right? It is, it, it is and can be an act of worship to God. 
the Spirit of God should be present in those moments. Married people say hallelujah. Single people, I'll tell you more about that when you're older. <laughs> so here's, here are other things that develop in us when we, when we focus our sexuality in the way that God intended it to be. Unselfishness and generosity. That should characterize our sexuality. Unselfishness and generosity. But that's not what a lot of people think about when they think of sex, right? Another thing that develops is humility. Because we no longer act as if people around us should revolve around us and exist to please us. Self-control also develops. Not being dominated by our sexual urges. Doesn't that sound good? Not being dominated, not being enslaved to any behavior, right? Only be controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Doesn't that sound nice? It is nice. It's wonderful. And many other great things develop. Can you guys think of anything? Maybe that's too risky. No, I won't do that. We'll talk about that. <laughs> Maybe we'll talk about that one-on-one -on -one later. You let me know if there's anything I left out later. One-on-one, -on -one. not now. Don't say it now. Don't do it. Okay. All right, and, and above all, this is what will develop in us if we focus ourselves on Christ alone. I want to read a couple passages, that two of my favorite verses in the New Testament. The first one is in 2 Corinthians 3. You can turn there if you'd like, um, but I will read it for you. I'm not going to wait because I don't want to take the time. Sorry. 2 Corinthians 3.18 reads, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, from glory to glory. You develop what you focus on. Right? Your mind develops. And so if we focus on Christ, then Christ is what we develop. We become transformed into the image of Christ. Another scripture says in 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Listen to that. What we will be has not yet appeared. Listen. <laughs> How beautiful and glorious you'll become, you have no idea. It's not yet appeared. How beautiful the church of Jesus Christ. We have no idea. It's going to blow our minds. 1 John 3, 2. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, speaking of Christ, when he appears, we shall be like him. And why shall we be like him? Because we shall see him as he is. We become what we see. We become what we look like, what we look at, what we focus on. This is a principle that God developed, that the enemy has twisted. The enemy has used this principle. The enemy can't create anything. You guys know that, right? The devil has never created one thing, except for maybe mosquitoes. I'm having a hard time. I don't know how, why, how or why God created them. If the devil ever could create anything, it was probably mosquitoes. But I, theologically, I believe that he can't create anything, so I'm not sure what to do with that. But what the enemy does is he takes the, the beautiful things that God has made and he twists them, right? He perverts them. And so this powerful principle of us becoming like God as we focus on him, the enemy's taken and he's turned it and used it for evil. But man, this is a glorious truth. As we focus on Jesus, we're transformed into his image and we develop his characteristics and his glory. 
and he's the one that we begin to pursue at all costs. God is the only person, place, or thing that we can pursue at all costs and still love everybody else, right? Why is that? Because everybody else, all creation, exists within God. And so if we love God and we're focusing on him, then we, by default, begin to love everybody else as well. It's the only thing that we can put all of our affections on and still be a nice person, right? And still be a loving person. He's the only one that we can worship and not lose ourselves. In fact, we discover ourselves because our true selves are found in God alone. In his book, Theology of the Body, Pope John Paul II writes, I have to talk about something Catholic because I was just at the Vatican. On, what day was that? Monday. Julie and I were at the Vatican. Well, there's, well, the thing about days, Neo, is kind of a funny story. Days repeat every week. And so this was last Monday, not tomorrow. Yeah. Sorry for the, sorry for the confusion. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I need to not be mean to Neo. I love you, Neo. I got to say something nice to Neo. Neo, I like the seagull on your shirt. You look very handsome today. Okay. Moving on. <clears throat> this was last Monday, not tomorrow, that we were at the Vatican. So John, Pope John Paul II, he wrote this incredible book that I haven't read, but I've heard it's great. Julie read it. It's on, it's on the top of my to-read list. It's called Theology of the Body. What's that? It is. Yes, so I've heard. Pope John Paul II, he writes that within marriage, we give our sexuality as a gift to please our spouse, that our, that our sexuality wasn't something that God gave us for ourselves. We do get to enjoy it as well. Hallelujah. But he gave it to us as a gift to give. And our spouse does the same for us. And C.S. Lewis, here's the second thing about C.S. Lewis, all right? Is this the only? I think this is the last thing. In, the book, in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes that in these moments, when we are giving our sexuality to our spouse and our spouse is giving their sexuality to us, the line between giving and receiving is blurred. I think that's such a cool picture. Because you're like, wait, who's giving, who's receiving? I don't care because this is so great, you know? <laughs> The line between giving and receiving is blurred. That, that's, that just testifies of how good of a God we have, right? That we give ourselves, and we give ourselves fully. But we also receive such joy, right? Both spouses are giving sacrificially, and both are receiving gratefully, and both are over, overjoyed simultaneously. That's how good of a God we serve. God gave you your sexuality as a gift for you to present to your spouse as an expression of self-sacrificial love not something that you are getting married so that you can fulfill in yourself, right? And if you're called to singleness, then living sexually pure is a gift to all those around you because you treat, you treat others with value and dignity rather than as a sexual object, right? People feel safe around you. If you're single and you're living sexually pure, then people don't have to worry, what's this person's motives towards me, right? You treat people with dignity, Sexuality as God intended is life-giving and reveals the beauty of God. But when it's perverted, it dominates us and steals from us and twists us into an insatiable monster that seeks to feast upon the sexuality of others in order to gratify itself. And none of us want to be like that. I know you guys. I know most of you. And those of you that I don't know well, I can, I can guess that you probably don't want to be that kind of insatiable monster, right? 
Sexuality expressed outside of marriage always says, I want this, and so I'm going to take it for myself. It's always self-gratifying and harmful to yourself and to any other person involved, whether that be a physical person, a person on a screen or on a page, or a person in your mind. It's harmful to everyone involved. And when we are wasting our sexuality, when we're spending a little here and a little there, we're not giving all of ourselves or saving all of ourselves as a gift for our spouses. Here's a great passage that's been um, profound in my life, and it's in Ephesians 5. It's just one verse, actually. Ephesians 5, verse 3 teaches us this. But, a, but among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Listen, I, I don't think I need to convince most of you here that sexual immorality is bad, but I want to encourage you and inspire you that sexual purity is better. And I, I would say that for a long time. I knew that truth theologically, but my lifestyle wasn't always living it out. And what we truly believe is exhibited more in our actions than it is in our thoughts or in our, in our words, right? We say that we believe that sexual purity is better, that it's, that it's healthier long-term and more enjoyable, but how we live is really revealing what we, what we truly believe, right? But the good news is that God can, God can change that belief. He can renew our minds, and he can make the truth that we know is right into the truth that we actually live. Yep, and he can do that, and we can help you do that. We, we've learned how to help people do that. So take heart. Have hope. But we don't want even a hint of sexual immorality. This is our standard and our goal. We want to live in complete purity before God. We don't want to waste any part of our sexuality because we want to protect it so that we can use it in the way, in the beautiful way that God intends. And any expression of our sexuality that is for the purpose of pleasing ourselves is not God's design for our sexuality. Okay? So don't ask yourself, I just want to repeat that last part again real quick. So anytime in your life you feel tempted to express sexuality in some way that's not to please your spouse, that is not God's design, okay? Just want to make sure that that point comes across. I encourage you, don't ask yourself, how much of my sexuality can I spend before I'm married without sinning? Or how much can I get away with? Or how much sexual involvement can I have before marriage and still be okay in my marriage? Like, that's, that's the wrong question. I, I encourage you rather to ask yourself, how much of my sexuality do I want to allow God to produce glory through? How much do I want to save to give to my spouse as a gift during our marriage? And if you save it all, you're not going to regret it. You will not regret saving it. You will not regret doing the hard thing now so that you can have the easier thing later. Right? Amen? It's all right to say amen during the sermon. No one's going to judge you. No one's going to be judging you. Dang, I, uh, Nacho Libre and C.S. Lewis have to get in every sermon. Every sermon. <laughs> yeah, right? C.S. Lewis and Nacho Libre. They're pretty much the same person. Slightly different outfit. 
slightly, just slightly. And I want to encourage you also, maybe you feel like your gift has already been robbed by sin. Either your sin or somebody else's sin. Maybe you feel like my gift has already been tarnished. Now what do I do, right? Um, you live, you feel that regret many times. Like, what do I do? I've blown it. But I want to encourage you that God can and wants to mend your sexuality and redeem it and use it for his glory and for his good. I've known so many people, myself included, that God has done that for, and he can do that for you. So I want to talk about some practical things, and then we'll finish up, all right? So here's how you can apply this truth, because, like I said, just convincing you that, that sexual purity is good is not the goal, because most of us agree with that already. But you're asking how, all right? How do I live this out? Well, I'm going to give you a tool, um, especially for men, that can help you with this, and that tool is called Conquer Series. And this is something we've been doing for a couple years now at H2O. Um, many of you knew that I was going to say this tool, and that's awesome. But Conquer Series is a group. We meet for 10 weeks, and I'll tell you more about it after service. I'm going to have every guy in the room, if you're able to, uh, meet us up there in the back of the amphitheater. Every guy, all right? So nobody's like has to be like, okay, I'm going to go up to the top of the amphitheater. Now everyone knows about my sin. Every guy's just going to go up there, all right? No matter where you're at in your walk with purity, we're just all going to meet at the top, and I'll tell you more about Conquer Series. We're going to start it in just a few weeks. And, man, I encourage you to, to man up <laughs> and to fight this thing, to battle it. Just repenting in your prayer closet is not, is not working. Something that my mentor in Pure Desire used to say to me is, how's that working for you? <laughs> how's that working for you? Yeah, good luck with that. How's that? Well, it's not really working, right? Repenting in your prayer closet by yourself is not really working. Fight this thing. That's the only way. Sexual purity does not happen by accident. And we need to work hard to position ourselves for God to do his work in us. And for women, we've been working on, on finding the right fit for how to, how to provide resources for women as well. And I don't know if that's going to look like a group um, like Conquer Series for Women or what, but we're working on that. But as we work on developing that, don't wait. You don't have to wait for a, an official group. There are lots of ladies in this church that can be resources for you. Um, your, your core leader, your coach, Tammy, uh, Julie, Cindy. We have just like many great ladies in this church, that, and you can trust them, right? <laughs> God has taught them some things over the years. Uh, don't wait. Some of you in this room might think that you're doing as much as necessary to live in purity. But you're not seeing a lot of progress. But if you truly see the value of something, then you're not going to do the bare minimum to fight for it, right? You're going to do whatever it takes. And I encourage you that even if you think, well, I haven't tried this, 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 or this, or this, or this yet, um, I encourage you to, to just stop trying the little Band-Aids and really get to the root of it and do something drastic. That was a turning point for me when I got to the point where I was willing to admit, like, listen, I need help. Like, I can't do it. Realizing that I can't do this on my own. And realizing that if I really want it, then I'm going to have to get the help I need. And for a lot of years, I was too proud to admit that I needed help in almost anything. <laughs> for me, if, if I felt embarrassed anytime I said that I would need help with anything. Um, when I was a little kid, let's see if I have time to tell this story. I think, psh, man, we got at least another 30 minutes. Come on. You guys are with me. When I was a little kid, I was riding uh, to Shipshawana, Indiana. Anyone know Shipshawana? 
Yeah, come on. Shipshawana, Indiana. It's, they have this giant flea market in Shipshawana. And so uh, I was riding there with my mom and my aunt in my aunt's car. And my cousin TJ and I were sitting in the back of the station wagon. And some of you don't remember station wagons like this, but station wagons used to have a rear-facing seat like in the trunk area. Super safe. And of course, only little kids could sit back there. So you put the kids in the safest spot in the station wagon. And so we're riding back there, and I've always battled motion sickness. And I started getting sick to my stomach. And Aunt Brenda couldn't find Shipshawana, so she kept, like, having to turn around. And I'm sitting back there like, oh, boy, I can, I can make it. I can make it. I can just make it until we get out of the car. And I didn't say anything to anybody. And I puked all over the back of that station wagon all over the carpet. <laughs> and this was on the way to Shipshawana. So we had to like finish the drive there and then ride all the way back with this puke on the carpet. It was fantastic. But somewhere in my, in my undeveloped brain, I thought it's better for me to puke in this station wagon than it is to tell somebody that I need help. And unfortunately, that became a trend in my life. I, I don't know how, why or how, but it became a trend in my life. And I had to fight against and break that trend in order for God to bring victory in my life. And I encourage you don't, don't, don't allow that to be your trend. Um, don't, don't think that saving your image, avoiding embarrassment is better than getting help and getting healthy, right? Many times we would rather risk catastrophe than admit weakness. And many of us can probably think of a time in our lives when we were not doing well and needed help, but we didn't ask for it. And we would rather look strong than become strong. We would rather look like we have it all together than truly do what it takes to get it together. And we tend to do the bare minimum to confront our problems rather than, to, rather than attack them. Just don't make that mistake, guys. You could keep trying on your own. Yeah, you could do that. You could keep trying on your own and see if you can become pure without risking the embarrassment of confronting it openly. But what advantage is there in that, really? And what are you really saving by doing that? You're keeping an image intact that's not real. Right? You're living in an illusion. There's, and what glory are you sacrificing by allowing sin to remain in your life? Man, guys, there's so much glory that's waiting for you, that's waiting for us. With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. What would happen if we devoted ourselves to turn our attention away from unrighteousness and focus our minds only on what is pleasing to the Lord? What would we become and what kind of glory would develop in our lives? So I want to spend a, spend a couple minutes in prayer here. And you guys, band, you guys want to come on up? They're going to play a song for us. You guys want to stand up with me? Stand with me for a moment. We're going to have a song of worship. And, um, and during this song, I just encourage you to resolve in your heart. Um, we're not going to pray right now that God would miraculously deliver you and that you would never have a temptation again. That'd be nice, right? But, and maybe God will do that for you. That'd be awesome. But I think more importantly, he wants to, to develop you and develop strength and perseverance and grit in you. Make you strong. Um, and so during this song, there, I think a, an attitude of repentance would probably be fitting. If there's repentance that needs to take place, then, then do that. Ask the Lord to forgive you and to help you and to empower you. And also resolve in your heart, Jesus, I'm going to stop just putting the band-aids on my sin. And I'm going to fight for sexual purity. Right?
Um, let's make that decision, and then you're going to have a chance to apply it because we're going to meet it for Conquer Series back here. And also for ladies that, um, that we don't have a group for yet, apply this by talking about it now, like this week. Make a decision. I'm going I'm to do what is, what is necessary to, to behold the glory of the Lord and to become glorious like that. Amen. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, you are good, and we trust you, God. And even if, even if we, in our experience, we don't always live out that trust in you, we decide right now that we're going to learn to live out trust in you. We're going to take the steps we need to take to learn to trust you with every part of ourselves, with our sexuality and every other part of ourselves, God. You know what's best. And when you give us a command that is for our enjoyment, it's for our good, and it's hard, but we will be grateful that you gave us the command and that we obeyed. Help us now. Holy Spirit, speak to us. Give us insight and direction as we pray and seek you and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.